Hello, lovelies. Uh, my name is Nelson. I am one of the pastors here at Artisan. I'm going to keep saying this until it's no longer true. I so miss being with you in person. Um, I don't think it will never not be true, right? Uh, I, I'm, but I'm so honored to be with you in this way. I want to begin by just saying thank you to everyone who took time to listen to my sermon share from a few weeks back. The, uh, the one called Goodbyes, I received several encouraging texts and emails and some comments in the chat on the heels of that and during that, and those, who, those things have helped put some wind in my sails in the last few weeks um, in this complex season of grief and newness, of endings and beginnings and messy middles. So thank you for watching and listening, and especially those of you who responded in some way, your words mean a lot. I also want to give shouts to Kathy and Scott, who, in giving me a bit of time to catch my breath after that share, have offered beautiful and challenging, hard and timely sermons these past two weeks. And if you haven't checked those out yet, please do. Uh, full disclosure, I have not wanted to get back up here this week. Um, there aren't that many weeks that go by where I don't say to myself, at some point in the process, Preaching's hard. Why did I not become a sommelier or something like that? Not that that work <laughs> wouldn't be challenging um, in its own ways. But this week, the struggle has felt especially acute. I felt stuck and sluggish. Um, like, I have to say something, but I don't have much to say. Grief is still very much at the surface. It feels raw. Uh, I got an email just earlier this week uh, from someone who walked through a very similar goodbye um, nearly 30 years ago and said the ache is still with her. And we're like three weeks in, folks, so that's called perspective. Um, so that's been part of it. And at first I thought, I'm just going to finish the sermon that I'd half written before my goodbye sermon. Easy. It's half done. Um, but it just wasn't sitting right for a few reasons. And then there was this added pressure of this not just being any old Sunday. No, it had to be Pentecost Sunday, the day the church all over the planet marks in some fashion this intensification of divine presence in the world through the Spirit. So in my present state, and at this time I found myself asking, what on earth do I have to say about that? Um, more disclosure. One reason I felt like I don't have as much to say is because of what and whom I've been reading over this past year. A lot of it in the wake of George Floyd's murder. I know for many of us, it's like a curtain's been pulled back, uh, a veil's been lifted. We, we're seeing things we haven't been able to see or haven't wanted to see. And one thing I've been trying to do as much as I am able, have capacity for, is to intentionally sit at the feet of black and indigenous folks and people of color, uh, nonfiction authors, novelists, poets, theologians, biblical scholars, musicians, rappers, visual artists, and it is an education, dear ones, on so many levels. It's humbling, it's disorienting, it's unsettling, and yet there's been this unmistakable undercurrent of deep, wide resonance. I will not look at Jesus and the cross the same way after reading James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree. I'm starting to see the limits and the problems of using only gendered language for God after being introduced to Dr. Will Gaffney. 
I'm coming to understand the Psalms of rage and hatred differently, and more broadly, looking at the whole scriptural testimony through the lens of oppressed persons and groups after reading Esau Macaulay's Reading While Black. I'm uncovering new insights with every turn of the page while reading the Gospels in the First Nations version. This feels a little bit like home shopping. But I just wanted to show you these books because you need to see them too. Just a couple weeks ago, a book by Judy Fentress Williams arrived. It's a, it's a literary and theological introduction to the whole Bible called Holy Imagination, and it is blowing my mind. So my education continues, yours is continuing, and then there's this recurring sense of, oh, 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 wow. Where has this been? Why haven't I seen that before? My, uh, my official title, as many of you know, is Pastor of Spiritual Formation. I'm also a pastor under spiritual formation. I am being formed even as I try imperfectly together with many of you to help create spaces for our individual and collective formation as a community of faith. Because that's true, I'm not the same pastor and preacher I was a year ago. And that creates certain tensions within me, tensions that cause me on occasion to want to shrink back from saying words in public. But then I put on Stevie Wonder's song, Higher Ground, and I hear the verse that says, preachers, keep on preaching. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll do it. But Holy Spirit of God, I need some help right now. That's been my prayer this week. Last week, uh, Scott dropped this incredible quote from Anne Lamott. And then he said, we should have a whole sermon of just Anne Lamott quotes. And I feel like he's only half joking, maybe quarter joking. <laughs> and a bunch of you were saying, I would, just, I would be here for that. And I agree, I would absolutely be here for that sermon. What I want to offer this week is not only quotes from a single author, but it's pretty close. I'm going to yield most of today's preaching moment to a black theologian named Dr. Willie James Jennings, with whom I share a middle name. No big deal. Um, I got introduced to Dr. Jennings through Kate Bowler's podcast a few months back, and I want you to know his name as well, and to have opportunity to hear his reflections on the meaning of Pentecost for us today. So let's first hear the opening verses of Acts 2 to just remember what happened in that house in Jerusalem when the Spirit came in power. And we'll go from there. Acts 2, and I'm reading from verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, 
Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what is Pentecost again? Scott let us know at the beginning of today's gathering. It's a, it's a Jewish holy day that's called the Festival of Weeks in the Hebrew Scriptures. And Pentecost happens 50 days after Pence, uh, Passover, hence the name, which means 50. It remembers God's providence, the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. I love what Judy Fentress Williams said about this event. The Holy Spirit's arrival on Pentecost both honors and redefines the holy day. In the accounts of the earliest days of the church, we observe a tension between the instruction, which comes to represent the establishment, and the spirit, which is a constantly moving target. Isn't that good? Now, Dr. Willie Jennings, as it happens, has written a commentary on the book of Acts, and it falls squarely in the category of where has this been during my whole theological education. I don't know that I've ever recommended a commentary to people who don't preach or teach, but that's changing with Dr. Willie Jennings. Y'all should go out and get the Acts commentary by Dr. Willie James Jennings. Here's a taste. This is the beginning of the miracle of Pentecost, the revolution of the intimate. This is the beginning of a community broken open by the sheer act of God and we are yet to comprehend the extent to which God acts and is acting to break us open. Indeed, it will be a community created by the Spirit precisely in the breaking open. Now Israel, the new Israel, is turned out by the Spirit. Only the gracious work of God in creation matches this moment of prevenient grace. This is God's doing. No one helped, no one assisted, Everyone only tarried. The waiting in prayer has not come to an end. It has only moved forward into an action fully of God. What a picture. There's so much there. That this is God's doing. No one engineered this event. No one caused it to happen. That it was a divine action that visited a community of persons. That the essence of that action was to break that community open like bread multiplied and distributed to everyone who is hungry. That the community gets shaped as they are broken open. It's not get formed and then, okay, good, now break open. It's a dynamic process where the spirit forms us as we lean into the invitation to be broken open, to extend the table, to welcome to include that we are yet to comprehend the extent to which God acts and is acting to break us open. That, that's maybe the part that stood out to me the most. Pentecost is no one-time event. The work of the Spirit is ongoing. As Rachel Held Evans put it, we live inside an unfinished story. And we don't even know the extent to which the Spirit is acting to break us open. That comprehension is still future. What stirs in you when you think of the primary activity of the Spirit being to break a community of persons open? That this is what God is up to all the time. 
Scripture offers a whole bunch of vivid images for the spirit, beautiful ones, wind, breath, fire, cloud, water, wine, a dove. Here in Acts 2, spirit comes as wind and fire. Jennings says that the similitude of the wind to the spirit's coming suggests not only its absolute power, but its absolute uncontrollability. No structure is stronger than the wind, and there is nothing beyond its touch. How much greater is the reality of the spirit than this weak metaphor? I, for one, am feeling invited to sit with this awareness as we enter the season after Pentecost that the spirit cannot and will not be boxed in. You ready for more Jennings? He says, this moment of divine power will be used to signify the full presence of the spirit through one crucial reality of life, language. Here, we must not draw back from what is being displayed in Luke's account. This is God touching, taking hold of tongue and voice, mind, heart, and body. This is a joining unprecedented and unanticipated, unwanted, yet complete joining. Those gathered in prayer asked for power. They may have asked for the Holy Spirit to come, but they did not ask for this. This is real grace, untamed grace. It is the grace that replaces our fantasies of power over people with God's fantasy for desire for people. That's a mouthful. They may have asked for the Holy Spirit to come, but they did not ask for this. One thing BIPOC theologians are especially good at is helping us not only see, but open ourselves to God's propensity to surprise. To surprise. To turn human predictions and anticipations upside down. To give people not what they expected, but what they most needed. What is the this they didn't ask for but received? Real, untamed grace. Grace that does what? Replaces our fantasies of power over people with God's fantasy for desire for people. Love this depiction of spirit-infused grace. A grace that looks exactly like Jesus, who did not grasp after power over, but desire for. A love that self-empties and humbles love self. In verse 8, those who were gathered around and were amazed, amazed by these new languages being spoken said this, how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Jennings describes the miracle of Pentecost as being one of both hearing and speaking. He says, this is first a miracle of hearing. The homes of mothers are announced in the mouths of those who were far removed from those mother tongues. This is not generic speech, formal pronouncements, but the language of intimate spaces where peoples inside talk to one another. The hearers query a past that does not exist for these followers of Jesus. How do they know my language and know my people? Where did they gain that knowledge? But their miraculous tongues are not about the past, but about the future, a future shaped by divine desire. This is why we must see more than a miracle of hearing. Such limited seeing reveals our failure as readers to grasp God's unfolding of the divine fantasy to these early believers. It also exposes our modern failure to grasp the revolutionary intimacy 
that will give birth to a belonging we will call church. This is a revolution of the spirit always poised to unleash itself at the slightest moment of faithful waiting and yielding. Are we beginning to see why Jennings calls the miracle of Pentecost the revolution of the intimate? Amid the wind and fire of the spirit, the language of mother tongues is spoken and heard, not because of any prior knowledge, but as an expression of God, what God wants the future to look like. Pentecost is uh, often paired with the story of the Tower of Babel. Babel pointed toward the beginning of divisions among humans on the basis of language, by extension, geography, ethnicity, and race. At Babel, the Babylonians grasped at power over people by assimilating everyone under one imperial language and culture. And God, as the story goes, then opposed that coercive uniformity by multiplying languages. Now in the Pentecost story, a new third option is presented. Not unity without diversity, not diversity without unity, but unity and diversity and harmony. Judy Fentress Williams says, in the Pentecost event, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit does not eliminate the other languages, nor does everyone find commonality in one. Instead, the disciples are given the ability to speak in other languages. This gift of communicating in other languages called polyglotism is a gift not only for the one who received the message, but for the one who gives it. She then says this, multiple languages improve and enhance the cognitive abilities of the learners. Theologically, the event of Pentecost births the church in diversity. From a dialogic perspective, there could be no better beginning to the Christian movement. The foundation of the faith is tied to a variety of sounds, figures of speech, sound pairs, and worldviews. In other words, Christianity in its nascent form embraces polyphony. It's a big word. Polyphony, for you musicians out there know this, it's a musical term that refers to two or more melodies sounded together, like a Bach fugue or a two-part invention. How are you doing, friends? Hanging in there? I'm just gonna keep breaking cardinal rules of preaching by drawing towards a close with one more ridiculously long quote. I think this is the best one. And then I'm gonna offer us a few questions and invitations. Recall that Jennings spoke of Pentecost as a miracle of hearing and speaking. So he goes on to say this. The miracles are not merely in ears. They're also in mouths and in bodies. God, like a lead dancer, is taking hold of her partners drawing them close and saying, step this way, now this direction. The gesture of speaking another language is born not of the desire of the disciples, but of God. And it signifies all that is essential to learning a language. It bears repeating, this is not what the disciples imagined or hoped would manifest the power of the Holy Spirit. To learn a language requires submission to a people. Even if in the person of a single teacher, the learner must submit to that single voice, learning what the words mean as they are bound to events, songs, sayings, jokes, everyday practices, habits of mind and body, all within a land and the journey of a people. Anyone who has learned a language other than their native tongue knows how humbling learning can actually be 
An adult in the slow and often arduous efforts of pronunciation may be reduced to a child. And a child at home in that language may become the teacher of an adult. There comes a crucial moment in the learning of any language if one wishes to reach fluency. That enunciation requirements and repetition must give way to sheer wanting. Some people learn a language out of gut-wrenching determination, born of necessity. Most, however, who enter a lifetime of fluency do so because at some point in time they learn to love it. They fall in love with the sounds. The language sounds beautiful to them. And if that love is complete, they fall in love with its original signifiers. They come to love the people, the food, the faces, the plans, the practices, the songs, the poetry, the happiness, the sadness, the ambiguity, the truth. And they love the place. That is the circled earth those people call their land their landscapes, their home, speak a language, speak a people. God speaks people fluently. And God, with all the urgency that is, the Holy, that is with the Holy Spirit, wants the disciples of his only begotten Son to speak people fluently too. This is the beginning of a revolution that the Spirit performs. Like an artist drawing on all her talent to express a new way to live, God gestures the deepest joining possible. One flesh with God and desire made one with the Holy One. Willie, James, Jennings, y'all. Take a few deep breaths. Maybe come back to this because he has said a lot right there. What a gift to the church. What a gift to the world. It's what I felt drawn to offer this week. It's what I had in me. A few questions to sit with. Think of that phrase, God speaks people fluently. Where are you right now in the process of learning to speak people fluently as God does? What invitation might the Spirit be holding out to you? What's the grace you need to take the next step in the dance? It could be that some of us need, are anticipating, longing for a fresh visitation of the Spirit. Maybe some prayerful waiting is what we're being invited into. Maybe some of us need to be with the image of a community broken open for a time, like maybe the rest of our lives, uh, to, to ask God what that might look like in our present moment. What does it mean for artisan to be a community broken open? Maybe we need some space for silence, to consider ways we've lived into the narrative of power over people, rather than the grace of God's desire for people. Maybe the invitation is to explore polyphony, to find and listen to a two-part invention by J.S. Bach, to revel in the beauty of the music and to prayerfully imagine this being what God made possible in our human interactions by giving us the Spirit. Friends, however we choose to respond today, may we all have the grace to enter into the revolution of intimacy, to join God in living out the deepest joining possible, one flesh with God, and our desire made one with that of the Holy One. Amen. Amen.